And the longer we live the Christian life, the more we understand what we're up against in ourselves and in our fallen world, uh, the more our sense of dependence grows. And we're glad for that. We, we want to learn about our hunger and about your food, your supply, so that we'll be constantly looking in the right direction and relying upon your triune majesty to bless us and help us in, in all of the aspects of our life, certainly in our lives together within family. So bless our considerations now in this hour. Uh, reinforce things, Lord. Some of this is repetitious, but necessarily so, because we need to hear it over and over and over again until it uh, permeates the depths of our being. Uh, so thank you for your word. We, we honestly can't imagine how we ever lived without the light of your word and how foolish we are when we depart from it and think that we, we know a better way. So please open up the scriptures its texts and its themes to us again as we uh, think about this topic this morning, and we pray it in Jesus' name. Oh, and and we do thank you for your grace to the Buchanans over these years of their marriage and the Williamsons and others. Uh, Lord, a lot of people seem to celebrate anniversaries in June. It's a good time to get married, Uh, and so we, we thank you for every year of faithfulness that couples have enjoyed. And Thank you for the comforts that recur for those whose spouses have gone on uh, from us, Lord. It's a real loss, and it's a loss that can be experienced with devastating acuteness even years after. So grant your comfort and your consolation in the Spirit as well, we pray for Jesus' sake. Amen. All right, ladies, if you'll all stand. Oh. Because I don't want to miss anybody. Oh, no. (laughs) This is not entitled Husband's Revenge. It's entitled New Women as Wives. And again, I hope you'll be challenged, stretched, even if the stretching leaves your thighs feeling like mine do after cornhole yesterday. You know, I don't typically in my pastoral work do a lot of this stuff. And I certainly don't do it for fun or exercise. So all of that, whoo, whoo, I'm feeling it. And now I've got to play again. John, I only ask you that you make it merciful and short. Okay. <laughs> Matt and I are going to play John and his partner, and I, I just wondered if we could just send in a letter of surrender. <laughs> but if you happen to spring another nosebleed, you have to forfeit. We're not going to wait for you to go see the nurse or anything. It's just... All right, back to business. Anyway, so the stretching might hurt a little bit, but then also, praise God that these things that God requires of us, He promises to us. And so it can be done by grace through faith, as in all of God's promises and commands. You know, this is just a parenthesis. I love Westminster Confession 14.2, the definition of saving faith that reminds us that saving faith includes obeying commands, trembling at warnings, and embracing promises. So, in saving faith is both embracing promises, which is what we normally call faith, and the obedience of faith, obedience to God's commands, because those two things go together. They cannot be separated. So when God gives a command, it's attended with a promise, and if he gives us a promise, it's attended with a command. Isn't that beautiful? I love it. All right, so what does God command you ladies, you new women who have been called to be or will one day be called to be wives? Again, got to speak in generalities, Uh, rather than dealing with all kinds of specifics, although the resources for many of those specifics are there. But just to say it again, and it came up in in, uh, Raleigh's comment, um, being, using the means of grace to become a fruitful Christian, if you are also a husband or a wife, is going to stand you in good stead for facing the, the special applications that are necessary within 
that relationship and those roles. So what does our Lord require of women as wives? What is the word of the king to us in Scripture? Now we might just remind ourselves that it was the Spirit of Christ who spoke through the prophets in the Old Testament. As Peter reminds us that it was the Spirit of Christ who was in them pointing when he uh, pointing uh, was pointing to when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. What was true of the story of Jesus in the Old Testament or of the Messiah is equally true of everything else that uh, God said. You know, if you really want a red letter edition of the Bible, it's got to all be in red. And that's really hard to read, so we should just leave it all in black. I mean, that's... So, when we read what Moses wrote, or what the prophets wrote, as well as what the New Testament apostles wrote, it's all Jesus, our Lord, our King, instructing us in what we should know and do. So, King Jesus was speaking by His Spirit through Moses when He wrote of our first parents in the Garden of Eden. So, just to look back or remind ourselves of Genesis 1, 26 through 27, God said, Let us make man in our image, in our likeness, and let him rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over the livestock, over all the earth and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God created he him, male and female, he created them. And that's unpacked further in the second chapter of Genesis, where we're told in verse 7 that the Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. And then later in verse 18, the Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Then God creates the animals, brings them to the man, and Adam names them. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. The end of verse 20. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. The man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of the man. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and they will become one flesh. Now, there's lots, obviously, in these passages. I just want to highlight some important foundational principles that emerge from these passages that are then presupposed by everything else that the Bible says about male-female roles in marriage. And the first is that male and female human beings, Adam and Eve, are equal in their created dignity. That is, both together are the image and likeness of God. There's a derivativeness in the formation of the man and then the woman from the man. Genesis 1 says that God created male and female as his image, as his likeness. And so everything else that the Bible says about male-female relationships within marriage underscores that idea that they are both creatures made in God's image, later fallen into sin, and then in Christ restored once again to that original dignity, that original calling. Secondly, the interrelationship between husband and wife, between Adam and Eve, reflects the one and many relationship within the Trinity itself. Now, it's two in one rather than three in one, but the idea of many and singleness being equally ultimate, as Dr. Van Til liked to say, that's important also. So there's that complementarity 
Again, in the economic trinity, the, the Son submits himself to the Father and the Spirit to the Son and the Father. But ontologically, the three are equally God, equal in power and glory, and yet uh, distinct in their personhood. And so it is that male and female are human, and yet they are distinct in terms of God's created purpose. And so, this relationship between men and women that comes to fruition in the marital institution is an earthly picture of the Trinity. And then, redemptively, it becomes, of course, an earthly picture of Christ in his relationship to the church, as we have seen in the last hour, as we'll talk about again shortly. So they reflect this kind of cooperative mutuality within the Godhead. And to reflect that faithfully is, of course, a significant privilege and responsibility. Thirdly, for Adam, the man, to be alone was not good. Now, again, you've been told this before, I'm sure, but throughout Genesis 1, you get God saying, very good, very good, very good, very good, not good. What happened here? What's wrong with this man alone? And, of course, he needs a corresponding helper, which God then immediately acts to supply And among other things, that implies that marriage is, I want to be careful how I say this, normative in the sense that that's God's design for most of the human race. But don't hear me saying that marriage is necessary, that you're somehow less than fully human if you're single. But God does say that that single life requires special grace and a special calling from God. So, you know, this is, this is sensitive because there are some people who have been single a long, long time and they don't want to be single and they wrestle with God's call over, is this really what God finally intends for me or am I just waiting a long time for His intention to be fulfilled? And, and I don't take that struggle among singles at all lightly. But certainly God is highlighting the fact that A husband will leave his mother and father, come into union and communion with his wife, and that is a good or a better condition even in God's original good creation. Fourthly, the authority and submission role between the woman and her husband, which Paul later describes in terms of headship and submission are present before the fall in the relationship between Adam and Eve in the beginning. Even before the fall, Adam exercises authority over his wife, and it's, it's signified in his naming of her. Now, again, I can't develop this in detail, um, and some, but I make the point because some particularly within Christian feminist circles, have argued that submission is a result of the fall. Before sin entered the world, there was no headship and submission, and therefore in the redemptive era, we can set that headship and submission aside because if it came in with sin, it goes out with redemption. I don't think that is accurately representing the biblical teaching. Adam named the animals. That was God's invitation to Adam to exercise his authority over the animal kingdom. And then when once he is provided with this unique, again, I'm not saying that his wife is somehow there with the animals, but this unique being, it's Adam who has to recognize and identify her uniqueness. She is like him. She's not like the animals. Among the animal kingdom, there was no suitable helper identified for Adam. But now this new creation out of the man is like him. Bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. And then he says, she shall be called woman, 
for she was taken out of the man. And I take that to be an exercise of authority, of headship. And later on, even after the fall, the man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all the living. Depending on how you interpret that verse, if that really is a reference not just to all the physically living, but now to the seed of the woman, which is the spiritually living seed, then Adam is recognizing this new redemptive character in his wife, that through the woman, the seed of redemption will finally come. But in any case, Adam exercises that authority. So when a woman submits to the headship of her husband, she's not being treated like an animal or a child, but as a wife, as someone truly unique and like her husband, like the man. So if we fast forward into the New Testament, we're, well, I'm sorry, I'm getting ahead of myself here. Um, We're still listening to Jesus in the Old Testament when we read about the fall, that bitter story of human rebellion, in particular the temptation. Is that the collapse from yesterday? So this is more collapse? I'm going to move over here. We'll have to splice this part out. All right, sorry. I told you I'm old, my attention span is short, I'm easily distracted. When the serpent comes to Eve with his temptation, he says, God knows that when you eat of that tree, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And Eve was deceived as the New Testament uh, re-emphasizes, and first succumbed to sin and then her husband with her. In 1 Timothy 2.13, For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Or 2 Corinthians 11.3, As the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning... So she is deceived. She listens to the lie. She embraces the lie. And that leads to the fall of the human race. Although, again, it's Adam, the representative head, who bears the responsibility for his sin. It's one of those places where maybe we wish we had a little more detail in the text. But the conclusions are always drawn out for us. So, ladies... Just to tell you, this heart thirst for self-worship that I talked about in the last hour is not a guy thing. There are lots of things in this world that are guy things, but this is not one of them. As humans, we all worship and serve the creature rather than the creator. And as the fall affected Adam's relationship to his wife, so it impacted Eve's relationship to her husband as well. Women are infected with that same autonomy, that desire to be a law unto oneself, to do what seems right in one's own eyes, as are their husbands. Women try to work out their own independence from God, and sometimes independence from their husband, even within the marriage relationship. And it it takes many, many different forms of expression. But it's the same root problem for all of us. The assertion of this independence comes all the easier within this context of blame shifting that immediately uh, follows the fall into sin. God speaks to, to, uh, to Eve and to Adam and to the serpent. And between Adam and Eve, there's the finger pointing and the the blame shifting that goes on. It's not my fault, it's her fault or the serpent's fault. I can maintain my independence. I'm okay. I have a place to stand. And so, like their husbands, Christian wives 
need to take up their cross daily, die to self in order to follow Jesus. Now we fast forward to the New Testament. After his resurrection, King Jesus had other things to say to women as wives through the writings of the apostles in the New Testament. And I just want to look briefly at a few of those. Again, not primarily to deal with the didactic point that Jesus is making, which in one form or another means submit to your husbands or obey your husbands, but rather to focus again on the why. What's the reason for it? We're trying to get at the heart, the motivation, and the goal, the purpose, the orientation of a wife's obedience to her husband as unto the Lord. So if you want to look for a moment at 1 Corinthians 11, and while you're turning to it, don't ask me about head coverings because I don't know. I've had various opinions over the years. I think I'll probably have a few more before I die. And I'm not ready to stake my life on any of them, so don't ask me about head coverings. Anybody here got a really strong opinion about head covering? Okay, you ask her. Huh? All right, 1 Corinthians 11. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. Verse 7, For a man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God. But a woman is the glory of man. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. That is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head, because of the angels. Nevertheless, in the Lord, women are not independent of the woman is not independent of the man, nor man from the woman. For as woman was made for, from man, so man is now born of woman, and all things are from God. Back to head covering just for a minute. Because I'm a geezer, my mind wanders also, but when you look at a passage like that and you see what it clearly teaches, and then you want to have arguments over head covering, it sort of reminds me of Jesus and the woman of Samaria where she wants to talk about what mountain should we worship on, and he wants to talk to her about her husband. So, we could talk about head covering, but the clear teaching is this instruction about our interrelationships. The authority, the headship of the husband over the wife is like the headship of the Father over the Son in the working of the Trinity, and then the Son's headship over the husband. And again, this is the way the interdependency works itself out. You know, some of the uh, medieval church fathers talked about this interdependency, this interrelationship as if it was a kind of a dance where in the dance each dancer lets the other one go forward to make the next move in the dance. And so it's like the persons of the Trinity are, are carrying out their work by deferring to one another so that the tasks that the, that the Godhead want to perform will, will function. And so the Son submits to the Father. And the Spirit submits to the Son and to the Father. Though they are equal ontologically in their being, there is this economic interrelationship, and it's kind of, you go next, you go next, you go forward. Well, in a sense, there's that sort of a thing. There, there is the equality between husband and wife, made in the image of God. But then, in this relationship, the wife says to her husband, you go first, that's God's will for you, and I will follow, because if we do it this way, then we will be able to carry out our corporate task, our collective task as one flesh, in obedience to the commandments of God. Now again, that's the way God designed it, sin tweaks it badly, but that's the picture. And so within the unity of a married couple, they work out God's will in terms of this role relationship. But for the wife, headship doesn't terminate on her husband. 
it terminates on God Himself. She submits to her husband as unto the Lord. Now again, that's pretty typical of all human authority submission relationships. A child submits to his parents as unto the Lord. A slave submits to his master as unto the Lord. In Christ, our loyalty is always focused on our loyalty to God in Christ. And then we do what we do on a human level, sometimes even when the human authority isn't doing it right, out of reverence for, and so here the wife submits to her husband out of reverence for God himself. Now, back for a moment to the husband you thought you were done. Any husband who exercises his headship as anything other than as servant of God, if he exercises headship because he's the head, then he knows very little about true leadership as God sees it. He's falling for the same I'll be as God myself temptation that we were speaking about earlier. So that being the case, the wife is to be in submission to the authority of her husband, and it should be publicly demonstrable in her behavior. I mean, at least that much is clear in this head covering discussion. Something outward should demonstrate the submission of a wife to the authority of her husband. This is the way in which you, ladies, show your understanding of who you are as a human being and as a child of the king in relationship to the husband to whom God has joined you. Now we can flip over to Ephesians again just for a moment, or it's fresh in your mind, I'm sure, if you don't want to have to turn to it. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. This is Ephesians 5.22. Submit to your husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. And again, in the concluding statement, this mystery is profound, and I, am, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see to it that she respects her husband. And in the parallel in Colossians chapter 3, verse 18, wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Now, I recognize we could have a whole set of messages just on what is this submission, what is this reverence, what does this obedience look like, and uh, if you invite me back in 10 years, I'll try it. Um, But for now, get the attitude. It is your heart posture before the Lord. Remember, we're living under the Lordship of Christ. So ladies, if you're living under the Lordship of Christ in joyful and willing submission, then the way that comes to expression is how you relate to your husband and his leadership. You see, our king knows the besetting sin of women in their relationship to their husbands. It's rebelliousness. Or, if not overt rebelliousness, the kind of manipulativeness that can get our own way by other methods. Just as he knows and understands that the besetting sin of their husbands is bossiness. To bully and to badger as leaders. Or to abdicate and vacate. Just abandon the home, abandon the family, not necessarily permanently or geographically, but just to disconnect. That's the way men express their independence and their sin, women in other ways. Some husbands are more than willing to give in to their wives' sinful usurpation. I remember Dennis Johnson said years ago, as he was sort of encapsulating the feminist movement, he's saying that women are now just demanding the right to be as irresponsible as their husbands have been for years. (laughs) 
works for me. I mean, it sounds about right. For every bossy husband, there's at least one who are happy to give up leadership in the family, to abdicate their calling, to give direction and encouragement to the family, and to retreat into their jobs or into their hobbies or to just reconnect with all of their buddies. All right, now 1 Peter 3 for a moment, and do turn to this because uh, we're going to look at it just a, in a couple of connections here. We've got a new wrinkle here uh, because it addresses a Christian's wife's responsibility to an unbelieving husband. Now again, the scripture requires that we marry only in the Lord. So a man should not marry an unbelieving wife, nor a wife an unbelieving husband. But there may be times when two unbelievers, one is converted and the other one is not. And so there is this unequal yoking that results. And so Paul, um, Peter addresses that kind of scenario. 1 Peter 3 Verse 1, likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be one without a word by the conduct of their wives. Now, let me just say there, if that's true of an unbelieving husband who never subjects himself to the word of God, it also applies to believing husbands that sometimes don't subject themselves to the word of the Lord. That is, when your believing husband isn't measuring up to his responsibility. Your methodology in dealing that with that is the same as what Peter lays out here. He will be one without a word by your conduct when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Do not let your adorning be external with braided hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a meek and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. And so in that setting, then, wives still have the responsibility with respect and submission to honor their husbands and follow their lead, always with the proviso that if any human authority, including a husband, commands a wife to do something that is sinful, that breaks the commandment of the Lord, then we always must obey God rather than men. But the general principle is, even with a non-believing spouse, to win them, or at least do our human part in winning them, by showing the respectful and pure conduct of a meek and quiet spirit. I can keep your finger there because I want to come back to that passage in a moment. As for your husbands then, ladies, we have to admit, this is beyond us, beyond you, beyond what any naturally sinful, self-worshipping woman is capable of doing, and that's what you are by nature. So your calling as wives, just like with your husband, is designed to humble you. You know, your husband shouldn't humiliate you. But God is going to humble you over and over and over again. He's going to make you hunger as wives so that you will seek His resources, His supply, His word of truth on the one hand, His sanctifying, transforming spirit on the other. There are infinite resources of grace, again, available to you ladies as you try to fulfill your calling as wives. But to live under the lordship of Christ, wives too must depend and draw life and strength from the indwelling spirit of the Lord. Again, think in terms of self-denial, self-sacrifice, this cross-bearing, taking up the instrument of your own death. You too must die to yourself so that you may live to God by living 
in a proper relationship to your husband, living in submission to your husband even as Christ submits to the church. And it's the Spirit working in you in the face of your obvious deadness that then gives you hope that you can turn from that deadness and seek the resurrection life that comes through that indwelling Spirit. Back to Romans 8, back to Colossians 3 and what they teach us about the new person, that inner person of the heart now transformed by the regenerating power of the Spirit. But here again, I think women, like their husbands, tend to rely more upon their own strength than on the Spirit of God in their relationship to their husbands. And so we quench and resist and grieve the Spirit by our own self-reliance. Trusting too much in the flesh, which profits nothing, we don't turn adequately to the resources of the Spirit. I've been recently rereading Francis Schaeffer's True Spirituality, and uh, when he's talking about this whole 100% God, 100% man thing, he talks about the active passivity Uh, And he uses Mary as an example when she receives the announcement uh, that she is going to conceive and give birth to our Lord. She says, behold, your servant, that's the passivity, that's relying upon what God has promised her, and then let it be unto me. And so she's going to do what God requires her to do. And there again, it's this faith and the working of faith so intermingled with one another that it's hard to tease them out and and separate them from one another. We often say, based on the analogy that Paul uses in Ephesians 5, that husbands are called to imitate Christ and that wives are called to imitate the church. And there's a sense in which that is true enough. But you wives have to have the mind of Christ. You too have to be eager and cheerful and consistent in your submission to the Lord as women before you'll ever be able to follow the pattern of submission to your husband. Just as Jesus forgot about himself and surrendered himself even to the point of death on the cross, his meekness, talked about it to the kids last night, not my will, but yours be done. I mean, many of you ladies probably have said just that in a conflict with your husband or in fears arising from your husband's leadership or lack of leadership or poor leadership. And, and you're thinking, okay, what, what do I do? Not my will, Lord, but yours be done. That's meekness. Again, deliberately, intentionally, sacrificing our will, submitting our will to the will of our Father, even as Jesus himself did. And out of that flows the obedience of faith. Faith in what the Father will do with us and through us. The obedience of a godly wife, first and foremost, is an expression of the meekness of Christ. Her clear understanding of her relationship to her Savior. And out of that then she submits to her husband out of reverence for Christ. That's the idea. So submission, that's the command. The motivation is this reverence for Christ. This grateful submission to Him. Now let me just go back to the first Peter passage and pick up a couple of other things here quickly before we run out of time. Peter says, don't fear anything, verse 6. One of the chief reasons, I think, women conclude that they must take the reins of the relationship or of the family in their own hands is out of fear. Sometimes those fears are imagined, but all too often they're very realistic. Fear of what will happen if they continue to follow rather than then seek to lead, particularly in the case of a non-believing husband. And uh, you think about Sarah. Sarah's used as the example, and she certainly 
had reason to be afraid, right? I mean, Abraham's track record as a protector was not all that great. I'm looking out for you, Sarah, so say you're my sister, so they won't kill me. Thanks, Abraham. Way to step up to the bat there. And yet, even with that kind of a context, Sarah submits herself to her husband, calling him and treating him as a Lord, and does not fear. I mean, I can imagine in some of our households what that conversation would have gone like when Abraham put that suggestion to Sarah. Say you're my sister and not my wife so they won't kill me. Are you kidding? You know, you can fill in the scenario. And yet Sarah is commended for being submissive within that kind of context. But the fear, you see, if I'm afraid then I have to entrust myself to God so that I can be fearless and do what seems so counterintuitive and emotionally so repugnant. And then the other thing that he mentions, and here's another thing that causes endless discussions, let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart, the imperishable beauty of a meek, and quiet spirit. Oftentimes, and I'm not going to make any foolish generalizations here, ladies are concerned about how they look. And as they age, they're concerned about the effects of the aging on their appearance. You know, you look at the before and after with the young starlet movie star and then how she looks when she's entering. It's interesting, of all the host of young actresses, how many of them really thrive into old age? And yet some do, but that's Hollywood. We're not talking about Hollywood. But that concern for outward appearance. And again, I think there's perfectly great reasons to be interested to a degree in those things. But the real emphasis here is that Peter contrasts that kind of beauty with the true beauty of the inner person of the heart, that which will necessarily fade in contrast to that which will not only not fade, but a beauty that will grow and be enhanced over time. Again, the general principle is the outer person is wasting away, the inner person is renewed day by day, and ladies, in your case, that outward beauty may or may not fade, but the inner beauty definitely will grow and be enhanced as you live with this meek and quiet spirit. What strikes me most about my wife, 44 years now, uh, as of last Saturday, and um, that doesn't count the seven years before when we went steady (laughs) and had a couple of years of engagement while I went off to seminary. is the beauty of her character. Now, I must admit that when she was a teenager, she was a knockout, and that's what I first noticed. (laughs) I still think she's a knockout. But her character bowls me over. The inner person of the heart. A life now that I've watched her devote to selfless, sacrificial service to others, to me, our children, now to our grandchildren, to classroom after classroom of Christian school students for 30 plus years, not to mention the ministry in the church, she has an unfading beauty of a meek and quiet spirit. Now those of you who know her know she's not mousy or weak, but she deliberately and self-consciously submits herself to her Lord and Savior, and lives her life out of that. Man, you talk about marrying above your station. I'm the one. That Christ-like meekness, that Christ-like gentleness of spirit, ladies, is the beauty that you ought to hunger and thirst for. And the wonderful thing is, you can have it. And you can have it in a superabundant, continuing flow throughout your lives. Matter of fact, you have to live longer in order for you to get more beautiful in these terms. 
And that's the beauty that God wants of his daughters in Christ. Now, we're out of time here. Just a quick word. Living under the lordship of Christ as wives means learning from other women, new women within the body of Christ. And I already talked about this kind of in terms of the body of Christ. But what's interesting here is that... uh, that God gives specific, explicit instructions to older women and how they ought to seek to influence and instruct younger women. Titus 2.3, you've read it before, older women likewise are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good and so train the young women to love to be affectionate toward, specifically, their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. And what I said about men, you know, some of the women who have wonderful marriages now over 10, 20, 30 years, it hasn't been all fun and games for them. Some of them have gone through very, very great difficulties, and you younger women can learn from them by watching them, but also by speaking to them. But here I really do have authority to say, you older ladies, owe it to your younger sisters to be proactive, to seek them out, and to bless them with this kind of help and encouragement and instruction. And we don't get any help from our culture. And I was thinking about the kind of training you have to have. Um, John Nelson, the Nelson's son, is, is in Barber College right now. He has to do 1,500 hours of haircutting before he can take the test. Did any of you ladies have 1,500 hours of on-the-job training for being a wife before you got married? I mean, we think if we have four weeks of pastoral counseling before we get married, that that's a lot of preparation. Or another guy who became an appraiser in our church a few years ago, he had to be supervised for, I think, 2,000 hours before he could be certified. We don't have anything like that to prepare us to be wives or husbands. And many of us, when we're young, we really... We do think we're working on mysteries without any clues. We, we're just making it up as we go along. And what a joy it is when an older woman will come alongside and be an encourager and, uh, and be a blessing. And I want to just say, if I might, and give me two more minutes, um, to say a word to the young pastor's wives who may still be around. We've got some younger pastors and younger wives. You know, we men think about how to prepare the young men to become pastors. And we might hook them up with a mentor, and we might give them encouragement and internships. But, you know, there's there's not that kind of attention given to young pastors' wives. Um, When I was ordained, this is going to scare the pants off you, I was 23 years old. I think I'm still the youngest idiot ever ordained to ministry in the Orthodox Presbyterian Church. And my wife was the same age. And she didn't know anything more about being a pastor's wife than I did. And we were immediately cast into the role of knowing what we were doing. People looked to me for leadership, but they were all, even though I told them, because Jay Adams Adams said, when you candidate, tell the pulpit search committee that they're not hiring your wife. She's not an elderina. She's your wife. You should tell them that, but they're not going to believe it. They're going to look. And, huh? Oh, amen. Oh, (laughs) I see that hand. So, She had to function in a role. Now, again, being a pastor's wife is not an office in a church, but it is a role in the church. We had one seasoned elder in the little church in Sonora that we went to whose wife came alongside for Sherry and was of great help to her, to encourage her. But you older pastor's wives, 
need to look around here even this week and identify the younger pastor's wives and establish a relationship with them. Now, we're scattered all over the place, but we got the internet, we got email, we got telephones. And I just plead with you, older pastor's wives, to take these younger women in their role, not just as wives, but as pastor's wives, under your wings and begin to pray for them and get to know them. You know, I've had the privilege in the last few years working on the Ministerial Oversight Committee to just go and sit down with pastors and talk with them a little bit on a visitational level, get to know them a little bit more off the floor of Presbytery. And it has done so much for me in ministering to them. I don't know whether they're benefiting like I am from their contact, but something approximating that for the minister's wives, particularly the younger ones, because, man, it's a lonely job. If you think being a wife is hard, you try to be a faithful wife and a faithful pastor's wife at the same time. More heroes. So, and, you know, we could think of these young pastors as husbands, too. And I was thinking about it this morning early as I was praying about this message The trick, guys, is to try and figure out how to sincerely convince your family that they're number one without making your congregation believe that they're number two. And serving your congregation like they're number one without allowing your family to feel like they're number two. It's impossible. But for the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for your words of challenge and encouragement. We thank you that it is just because we believe in who you are and what you have promised for us, indeed what you have already accomplished for us in Jesus Christ, that we have hope that you will work the results of our submission and our obedience into glorious fruit. And I pray for our sisters, those who are married, those who aspire one day to be wives, and particularly for, well, all the pastor's wives, particularly the younger ones who are just beginning to learn. Give them grace and help the rest of us to bless them in every way that we can so that their burden will be as light as it can be. And teach them to love their husbands as they love Christ, even when their husbands don't remotely resemble Christ. To not be afraid, but to trust you and to continue to do what you have called them to do, even when they're pretty sure it'll never work. Encourage them along the way and let them see the fruits of their faithfulness in the lives of their husbands and the people around them. Lord, we wouldn't dare to ask, but you've said ask and you've promised to answer. And so we do for the sake of our King. And it is for his honor that we ask these things. He is the one we want most to be glorified. Yes, we'd like to be happy along the way, O God, satisfied and content. But even if we're not, O Lord, may Jesus be glorified. Amen.